So Sarah mentioned a couple upcoming things. I want to mention one too. Guys, this is your personal invitation from me to join us for a men's retreat May 19th and 20th. We talked about this last week. Would love for you to join us and, and come with that. It's going to be a great time. Mike will be back in the back. He would love to talk to you about it. He doesn't know that I was going to say that, but he, he'll be back there. He'll, he'll grab you, tell you anything you want to know. It's going to be good stuff. Going to be good, some, some good, good food. All the best things in life are celebrated with food. Can, are we, no? Not, not feeling that? Can we get it? Yeah, all right. All the best things in life are celebrated with food. And we, my wife and I were at a wedding this, this past evening and after a wedding, traditionally, you get together and there's some food, that kind of thing. Actually, at our hours, we did not stick around. We we're like, we'll cut the cake. We're like, we'll see y'all later. We were, we were gone. Uh, but last night, we, we had the wedding. We had the wedding ceremony. had this big meal. Everybody kind of comes together. And there's something about coming together around food that's more than just about the food. I, I, I don't know if you, if you know that or not, but especially at a wedding, one of the things I say at the wedding is I say, hey, this couple is coming together to become one. But also, you guys are here in support of them. We're asking you to become one with them as well. And so when you come together and you celebrate after that time, and everybody's kind of sharing a common table, sharing food with each other, it kind of represents that coming together, that, that, that special time. Uh, there are other really special moments in which it's, it's, you know, coming together around food is really special. I remember as a kid, when you, when you went to a buffet, that was, that was really special. Because um, you could get your own dessert. Like afterwards, you go to the, the soft serve machine and, and get as, as much as you wanted. You know, you, you remember how it first felt when you saddled up to the golden trough? And you're like, oh man, this, this is amazing. Now it's kind of gross to me, but you know, it, things change. If you've ever been to a pig picking, can, can I, like how many of you have actually, I'm talking about a real pig picking though. I'm not, I'm not talking about like you just had some barbecue that one time, but all right, the, those of you that are, man, we need to do something about that. I don't know. Uh, come talk to me if you, if you like to smoke meat or, or that kind of thing. But a real, like, especially Eastern North Carolina pig picking where they get a whole pig and they're, uh, you, oh man, the, I, I just, right now I don't have the words actually to describe it. It's just an amazing religious experience. So uh, a, a, really, <laughs> a really good steak dinner. Are you, are you with me? Like, again, amazing stuff. A birthday celebration when there's cake and ice cream. Uh, the cake obviously has to be from Ucrops. Uh, just, just, what, don't, no, yeah, come on, come on, it's got to be, it's got to be you crops. Thanksgiving, you know, all, all of these amazing things. And the most underrated of, of them all is the family dinner table. And let me just let you know, the most important thing that you can do with your family, the most transformative thing that you can do with your family, one, is being in church together, absolutely, 100%, uh, but throughout the week, being and gathering around the family dinner table is the second most important thing that you can do with your family. That's the most transformative thing. Because it's not just about the food. It's not just about the table. But it's what's happening when we are gathering together in those, in those moments. When we share food with others, there's a number of practical applications from the Bible, uh, from uh, teachings of Jesus, from themes that we, reach, uh, that, that we read and we teach and we understand that, that are happening that are so much more important than sometimes we realize when we sit and gather together. We're providing for the needs of others. We're practicing hospitality. Uh, we're practicing humility in relationships because we're sitting all at a common table. We're honoring others on a common level of being made in God's image. We're sharing common shared blessing, uh, celebration of God's goodness and his provision in our life. And when we eat together, we're, we're actually participating in a form of worship. 
And I don't know if you've ever thought of it in that way, but there's a sense in which when we gather around a table together, especially in the way Jesus does this with other people, we're entering holy ground. In fact, um, even if we do this by rote and we don't really think about this, we often signify this by praying before a meal. We'll, we'll call it saying the blessing. Um, I don't know what a blessing is, uh, but we're gonna, uh, you know, we're gonna celebrate by praying the blessing. Uh, another way that we will say this, a little bit archaic at this point, but it's from a, a Latin phrase, but we used to say, we'll say grace. I don't know if you've heard that before. Uh, but never, Jesus never just says grace when he gathers and he prays around a shared table. Uh, he's always sharing and modeling it for the people that he's sharing a meal with. Jesus um, is, is joining in in table fellowship all the time throughout his ministry. And his particip participation in meals with other people creates opportunities for Jesus to give and extend the grace that God always wanted us to experience in our life. And there are a lot of examples of this, but the example that we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 36. Um, encounters with Jesus in these moments, you know, they, they come alive when we consider and put ourselves in place of the people who are there sharing the table with him. They're moments of deeper understanding of the person and nature of the Messiah and how Jesus changes how we experience and live life in the here and now. And the thing that people found most radical about Jesus when they gathered around the table with him is how he extended and modeled grace. Grace, uh, you know, maybe we know the, the textbook definition. Grace is the undeserved or the unmerited favor of God in, in our life. Grace is God giving of himself what we don't deserve. And we might understand that, but it's, it's intellectually, but it's so much more difficult sometimes to receive and give that kind of grace practically in our life and the way that God wants us to experience it and share it. And so when we come to Luke chapter 7, we've got two different people that I'm hopeful that we kind of see ourselves a little bit in both of these people in this interaction that Jesus has. I'm not necessarily hopeful that we see ourselves in this, but that we understand that sometimes we are both of these people at times, at times in our life. Because even, even, um, even the religious elite, the people who were following God the longest, who seemed to be the most blessed in life, didn't really have a good grasp on what grace actually looked at. All right, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and we're going to start there. When one of the Pharisees, whom we later find out is named Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped him with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And let me just set up the cultural context here for you. This seems pretty innocuous. Like when you and I invite somebody over for dinner, it's generally because we like that person to some degree, right? We're, we're going to have you over to our house. We're okay with you coming in and, and, and like letting you see how we live. We're going to give you the food that we have and that, those kinds of things. The Pharisees at this point in their relationship with Jesus, um, th this is not necessarily just an innocent invitation. And it's also not necessarily a private invitation as well. When we think about it, we, maybe we have a dining room or have a kitchen table that we gather around in our house. In this situation, the Pharisee would be inviting Jesus over. There'd be other people there that, um, dignitaries is probably not the right word, but uh, other people uh, that would be honored, you know, that were gathering around, around this table. And it would be much more of a public type setting. At least people, it might be outdoors, undercover, but it would be outdoors. And other people would have open access to this meal. 
So it's not just kind of a private uh, secret gathering. And the other thing about the Pharisees that you need to, need to know is um, at this point, they were actively trying to trap Jesus to be able to get rid of him. Jesus was challenging their power, challenging their, their authority because of how he was speaking about God and what he was teaching about the character and nature of God. And so at this point, they're probably trying to trap Jesus into saying something blasphemous or treasonous so they could get rid of him. And so they're sitting around. Actually, they're not sitting around. They're reclining around a table. And so we get this picture of this woman coming in. You think, man, is she crawling around the table? You know, she stood there and did this. How is this this possible? Because when we sit, um, and this is what it would would have looked like. So you see people kind of uh, leaning. It seems really uncomfortable. I'm not sure why, why this is happening like this, other than they just really wanted their feet as far away from the table as possible, which I totally understand. I, I get that. Uh, but they're reclining here, and people would have open access to come, uh, come, uh, come around them. And then this woman who walks in, she walks in nameless. She's only described by her reputation, a woman who lived a sinful life. And there's some, uh, there's some context and um, ideas about what, what this meant. Most of the time when this is described, we're talking about sexual immorality. And so popularly, we've, we think about this woman coming in and the type of reputation that she has, the, re, the fact that she has her hair down in this culture and what that signifies, that maybe she was a prostitute coming in. And so everybody, when she walks in, I mean, people are going to know. And people are going to understand, even though that she's not the focus and, and there's a lot of activity, they're going to be like, oh, man, I can't believe she showed up. The thing that happens is unique in a number of different ways. The first thing that's unique and the first thing you need to understand is that ancient feet were nasty. Um, and some of you are like, well, feet are just nasty. Um, and some of you feel other ways about feet, but we're, you know... <laughs> Um, but just dirt, I mean, they're, they're just dirty. Renee got a pedicure the other day, and she's like, you should feel how soft my feet are, and she stuck it up. She had been walking outside barefoot, so like covered in, in dirt and stuff like that. I should not be telling you this at all. Um, sometimes the filter just doesn't work, and it, it just doesn't happen. So um, don't tell her I said that. She's, she's serving in Velocity Kids. By the way, did Sarah mention that we'd love for you to volunteer and help out with that? That's great. I'm not going to get myself out of this. I'm glad we're not recording this, um, and it's not online. Um, she, she does a couple, a couple unique things, and the first thing is that she washes Jesus' feet at all. I mean, th- this would be something reserved for, like, the lowest of low, like, the bottom-rung servant in, in, in the household. And so the fact that she's doing this is, is a very significant thing. And some of you remember the fact that Jesus does this for his disciples. I mean, it, it, this, this is an amazing thing. But she doesn't just wash Jesus' feet in a typical way. She washes them with her tears and with her hair. Um, I, I, just, I want you to think about and just try to put yourself in the moment of, of what that represented for her in her life. What, what these tears meant and, and what she was presenting to Jesus. So think about the condition of her life. Think about all the regrets. Think about all the ways that she grew up thinking her life would be that never came to fruition. Think about all the things that she will never be able to have or never be able to experience as a result of her reputation and the condition that she's in. And all of these things are, are being poured out at the feet of Jesus right here in this moment. She's weeping. Uh, the, the text, uh, the, word, the descriptive word there for her weeping, for her crying over Jesus is raining down. Tears are raining down on Jesus' feet in this moment. Um, 
there, there's, there's another kind of thing that I'll just mention at passing. There's not a whole lot of historical veracity to this. Um, but uh, there's this idea, romanticized idea, that people uh, would, would carry around a, and, and hold a tear bottle with them. Maybe some of you have heard, heard of this. There's not, there's not evidence in the historical record for this really. Um, pro- those are probably more, more perfume bottles, um, which we're coming to that in a second. But, but just the idea was that people would collect these things, and, and women in particular sometimes would save these things and present them to their husband as a result of all of their dreams, all of their hopes, all of their fears, disappointments, and stuff, and giving, giving themselves into, into that relationship. I'm giving all of myself uh, to you. And so re- regardless, uh, regardless of which it is, I, I don't know that she actually had a dear tear bottle that was, she was pouring that out, but just at least appreciate the imagery here of what's happening. She's giving every, everything of herself, all of the loss, all of the perseverance and hope and love uh, that she did not have in her life, the loss of a life that, she wished, uh, that we wish she had. Especially when you consider that there's no, no reason to suspect that this woman wanted her life to be in the condition that it was in. She didn't set off wanting it to be this way. And in the, in the way that um, particularly women at this time experienced life, there's, there's probably people in that room that actively participated in her being in the condition that she was and state that she was in her life at that point. Um, that that this, wasn't, this wasn't her, like, this is what I set out to do. This is, this is where I want to be in life. And she pours all of that out, literally pours her tears out on Jesus' feet, pours her sorrow out at the feet of Jesus. And she lets down her hair. By the way, this, this, this is enough to make the room gasp because this would be an equivalent to exposing one, oneself. She lets down her hair, dries his feet, kisses them, not in a romantic way, but in a repentant, in a repentant way. And here's the second, so, so that's, that's massively unique. Here's the second thing that she does. Everything that represents who she is emotionally, internally, spiritually, she's poured out at the feet of Jesus. And then she takes this perfume, this perfumed oil, and she pours that on the feet of Jesus. Um, this was not something, I know some of us are like, oh, go to CVS, I can get a $5 bottle of perfume or something like that, or my deodorant makes me smell good, you know, or what, what, whatever it is, and for us it's normal. At this point, this perfume, I, this could be worth like an entire year's wage. wage. Um, this could be her entire life savings, this could be her retirement plan at this point, there's no social security. And so she takes everything of who she is, mentally, emotionally, sp- fear, spiritually, and, and pours it out the feet of Jesus. And then she takes everything of, uh, that represents of what she has in this world, and she pours that out at the feet of Jesus. Um, she is giving of herself fully. And here's the reaction from everyone else, in particular, the Pharisee who has invited Jesus. In verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So I, I, I get that, like, we might know this story already, but again, I think it's so important for us to put ourselves in the, in, in the context of the text and kind of understand what, what people are thinking and feeling here, where everything she's doing right now to Simon, the Pharisee, and probably his guests is just disgusting, from letting down her hair to kissing his, the dirt, his part of his, his body, his feet, wasting perfectly good, expensive perfume, um, as far as propriety and how she's engaging with Jesus and, and people in public, I mean, everybody would be in shock. 
And it's at this point in the interaction that Jesus is about to teach something to Simon and his guests. And to prep us for it, I want us to be real cautious about whose shoes we have placed ourselves, ourselves into at this point in the story. Because right now it would be easy, especially in the way that I've talked about it, it would be easier for us to look at Simon the Pharisee and say, man, what a jerk. This guy's a loser. I can't wait for Jesus to take him to task. And maybe, maybe it's... Um, more palatable for us to remember times in which we felt more in common with a woman who's coming to Jesus and giving everything of herself uh, to him. But there's probably something a little bit deeper that we need to take away from this. And that is, um, not, not only do all of us come to Jesus in the same state of the woman, uh, but all of us at some point have also been the Pharisee. And so Jesus teaches a parable that... Um, that lets us know that we're probably more, a little bit more like Simon than we'd like to admit. Uh, but there is a way in which we can do something about that. So Jesus answered Simon. Keep in mind, um, Simon was not saying this audibly, but Jesus knew, knew what was on his mind. He, he could tell. He could read the room. Jesus answered Simon, verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. We hadn't been judging this woman correctly. Simon was a teacher of the law of Moses, and as such, he knew that this sinner was unclean, that she was detestable, she was behaving erratically. You know, you just, this is not proper. And since Jesus was allowing this to happen, it must have been proof that Jesus was not the Messiah, because you don't let people like that interact with you like that. But if you unpack the parable a little bit, in this scenario, the moneylender represents God. He's the one who knows the ledger of debt each person owes. And the assumption here is that the one who has the larger debt, of course, is the woman, right? She's the one who has all the obvious sin. She has the reputation. She must have much more infractions in her life. And the one who owes less, so she owes 500, uh, de definitely. The one who owes less, you know, it's got to be Simon. He only owes, owes 50. Um, and so, of course, he has, his list must be smaller. But the person who's in better shape, the person who loves more, is not represented by the person who has sinned less. Jesus' point is not that, uh, by, by the way, um, this is not like, oh, I need to expand my ledger uh, a little bit, right? Uh, so let, let me just say, like, that's not the point here. Uh, the woman gets the tension because she has much more debt against her sin. Uh, against more guilt, more shame, and Jesus is going to challenge Simon's view of life and God's relationship with humanity uh, because God's aim has always been forgiveness in, in, in these scenarios, in these situations. The temple system that they had been practicing, that, that the Pharisee had been studying his entire life, that he had memorized you know, tons and tons of the Old Testament, it was all taught and designed to demonstrate God cleansing sin. It was all about God's grace on display. Uh, but sometimes we get things twisted. Something, sometimes we, we just get so familiar and so appreciative of our relationship with God. Sometimes we think that um, we, we just kind of get stuck on comparing ourselves to other people because it makes us feel superior. Um, and if we're better than the other, then that means we can feel better about, about ourselves. And so they thought of themselves more in terms of how they deserve God's blessing and grace. And how that was a proof that these other people, oh, they must be sinners and God isn't blessing them because they don't have what I have. 
But there's something in the parable maybe you missed. It's in verse 42. It's really important that both people had in common, the one with the larger debt and the one with the smaller debt. And it's something that Simon definitely had missed. In verse 42, Jesus says, neither of them had the money to pay him back. Neither of them had the money to pay them back. So it wasn't about the amount of money, right? Because that's how we would, that's how we would um, judge this. Typically, that's how Simon would, would judge it. Well, who owes more? That's the person who's in worse shape. But Jesus says neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts, debts of both. If Simon had taught this lesson, he, he would have said, which, which owed, owed more? You know, shame on them, right? And it's obvious who's better in the, in the story. Uh, but Jesus sets them straight because she could see her need for grace while Simon was foolishly confident in his own virtue. That, that context, that idea and how we relate and interact with other people is so important to understanding the way of Jesus and the grace that God extends to us through him. Measuring our righteousness by comparing our sin against other people, may it never be. Maybe we never look at someone else and say, well, I'm not so bad compared to them. Well, it's like, man, I'm, I'm so grateful I'm not, I'm not that person because they're terrible. Amazing grace is not so amazing when we look at other people in such a way that makes them less worthy of God's grace than us. Amazing grace is not so amazing when we think someone else can't be forgiven by us or God, even though we will take God's forgiveness any day. Don't get me wrong, the consequences of sin are not the same. I understand that. There's a difference between murdering and lying, even in, in, in Scripture. Like, we understand that there's different levels of consequences for, for, for those things. And so when people say, well, all sin is the same, it's like, nah, that's not really the point. Um, there, there's uh, the same result happens in terms of our separation with God, but we experience different consequences as, as a result of that. And that's good and that's righteous and all, all of those kinds of things. But not me... Not the liar, not the murderer, not the prostitute, not anyone of us can pay the debt that we owe to God on our own. None of us can afford it. No one deserves grace, but God is willing to give it to anyone who is willing to receive it. Nobody can afford to pay the price, but Jesus wipes our debt from the books where we all begin from the same starting point regardless of how we showed up when we reached for grace. Simon made a show of having Jesus as an honored guest uh, at his house, the woman fell down at Jesus' feet and gave him everything. Simon would know the textbook definition of grace, but this woman was living it and receiving it. And because Jesus is Jesus, he's going to call Simon out on it. He turns to the woman and he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, which shows that they completely missed the point, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And maybe we think about, well, how, how can we possibly you know, do this in the way that Jesus, uh, how, can, how can we treat Jesus in this way? How can we come to this understanding? Jesus says, the, you know, when you do this to the least of these, it's like you're doing it to, to me. 
the, the way that we interact and, and, and treat with people, only when we realize the wretchedness of our own sin, only when we realize the grace that we need to be redeemed back to God, the separation and the dehumanization that our sin causes in our relationship with God, can we appreciate how much we've been forgiven and how powerful that grace freely extended by God truly is? And so, yes, don't look down on others. Everybody is welcome to the table. But don't diminish God's grace either by ignoring the wretchedness of sin. And don't be scared to come to grips with it. Because that, that's, that's the problem Simon had had in his life. He, he forgot. He forgot how he showed up to Jesus. And he didn't extend the same grace that he, re, he had received from God to others. God's grace is amazing because of what he saves him from. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And not only is Jesus saying that we commit ourselves to him in, in our life with, with, with Jesus in discipleship, but it's that we open up our lives to welcome those far from Jesus to experience grace too. It's not just for us. Grace is an overwhelming generosity from God, and it's meant to produce that same generosity in us. We understand the significance of grace through our gratefulness. Listen, pouring out tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of perfume out, um, maybe that sounds absurd, but this is a drop in the bucket in comparison to the practical significance of grace in our life. This woman was more generous in spirit toward Jesus, not necessarily because Simon hadn't sinned as much, but that he was unwilling to put himself in the same category of needing God's grace like this woman. One of the best ways I've heard this said is that when you forget how desperately you need grace, you'll love Jesus little and other sinners even less. When our guilt is less obvious to us, uh, we are less inclined to see the need for grace that we've taken from God and received from God. But when, with Jesus, when we acknowledge our guilt, our grace abounds. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, who, um, you know, super Christian, I mean, super missionary, super evangelist, starts churches, I mean, a cornerstone, one of the cornerstones of, of the early church and how it began and spread. He says in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 through 25, What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when we come to the feet of Jesus, I mean, there's two, things, there's two things that happen there. One is we come and we understand we bring our wretchedness to the table. And everything of who we are emotionally, spiritually, um, we, we, we pour out at the feet of Jesus as a result of that and the separation uh, so that we can be with him. Everything of who we are, material, materially, what we have scheduled, our, our priorities, we pour those things out at the feet of Jesus uh, so that we might not be separated from, from him again. And yet Jesus doesn't, he doesn't just allow that to happen and say, all right, finally, you know, you gave up all the things that you, that you finally gotten what you've deserved and you recognize that. He says, guess what? We're good. We're good now. You've come, you've, come, you've accepted that free, that free gift of grace. Now go, go in peace. When he says this to this woman, he's going, go in, go in completeness, go in wholeness. Because now that separation from God is no more. And that's the grace that Jesus offers us and extends to us. And that's the grace that we're meant to offer and extend to others in our relationships. And that's what he's trying to teach Simon. And say, man, don't, don't miss how important this grace really is. And so my encouragement to you is to consider how, how might you show 
the type of gratefulness in our relationship with others and our commitment and discipleship with Jesus, how might you show gratefulness in a real way in your life? Not just have it on paper, not just think about it, not just have this idea, but in our relationships with other people and how we follow Jesus consistently. Um, how can we show and model our gratefulness to God in those moments? So I'm going to tell you, this, this moment for this woman that has this reputation, I mean, this, this made a, a mark in a moment of history that continues to ripple out through that shows how deeply transformative the grace of God really is because we're still talking about it today. And her reputation is much more different now as a result of this encounter with Jesus. Every week at Velocity, we take communion together. We're going to do it a little bit differently this morning. So what I'd like for us to do, if you're here with us this morning, uh, there are three tables around the room, and, and the trays there, there are a couple cups that are stacked together, bread and juice. I'd like for everybody to go ahead and go grab communion now, but don't take it quite yet. Just go ahead and grab it and then come back to your seat, and then I want to read a text of Scripture, and, um, and we're going to take communion. So if you would, just go ahead and grab those cups and then come back to your seat holding those. We take communion every week as a church because we signify important, meaningful moments in our life with a meal, with a shared table, where we gather together where it's not just necessarily about the food, um, but it's about us being together and sharing in God's provision and blessing on our life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this about communion. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Paul's referring to uh, the church not caring for one another and being more concerned about the food that they were eating. Verse 31, he says, But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you, eat, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And so here's what I'd like to say. What, what Paul is referencing here, I think, is, is the times when we come together and we just, kind of, we just kind of forget about how deeply meaningful the grace of God really is and how significantly it has transformed our life and how we need all of that remembrance and expressions of grace together and from one another. And so when we take communion, we're not going to always take communion this, this exact way that we're doing it today. When we come together, we're, we're coming around a common table, sharing in God's grace together. And we are eating together, and we are examining ourselves and recognizing that we all need to come to the feet of Jesus and pour out everything of who we are. There's, there's none of us that deserve what we are about to receive. And yet how significant the joy is of the grace that we do share and that we do get to partake in together. Um, and, and so with, with that in mind,
um, I would like for us to, I'm going to pray, and then for, I'd like for us to take communion uh, together this morning. God, help us to consider the vastness of your grace. And God, help us to see within ourselves how deeply we need it, how incredible it is that you allow us to receive it, regardless of what condition we come to you in. God, help us to, help us to see ourselves in the way that you do. And help, help us to be mindful of how we've been changed by the way that you, you treat us, by the way that you think about us, by the way that you gift your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.